Welcome to today's bonus episode of the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. Today I'm featuring an interview with an author of many books in a variety of genres. We talk about relatability in characters, writing authentic sociopaths, using personal experiences to enhance the realism of fiction, the hero archetype, marketing as an author, teaching children through books, permaculture farms, Stanley Milgram experiments, and so much more. I hope you enjoy it, and be sure to check out the books at the link in the show notes. Today's guest is Phil M. Williams, and he's a voluntarist author of 22 books, primarily across the thriller genre. His storylines often portray modern dilemmas and controversies with antagonists who occupy positions of power and protagonists who are regular Joes and Janes. Phil lives in central Pennsylvania with his wife, Denise. When not writing, he can be found tending their permaculture farm. So welcome to the show, Phil, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate it. So you've written and published a lot of books, domestic thrillers, dark psychological thrillers, a thriller series. You've also published a children's book about permaculture, um, nonfiction, etc. So with the majority of your books being fiction, you write protagonists that seek the truth and the good, bad and ugly of the human condition. What is it about these kinds of characters and plots that draws you in? I think the search for truth is is one of those very universal ideas for human beings. You know, it's, I think it's central to the human spirit. And I think it's one of the reasons why readers want to turn the pages, right? It's like, we, we have to know the truth. Like we have to know what's going to happen. And, um, and so it's almost like we're wired yeah. to kind of know what the truth is. And I think, I think if you really, like, I'm not an evolutionary biologist or anything, but I think if you really studied it, you might find that, uh, you know, as you go back thousands of years, like, they had to know whether or not it was true you could eat this or not eat this, right? So yeah. having information be correct was probably something deep in our, you know, biology that's like, hey, we really want to know, right? We mm-hmm. it's, it's important. I think that the truth is also really, really tricky, right? Like people have different versions of what they think is true. There, of course, there's all the lies and propaganda. There's, mm-hmm. you know, ignorance. What I find really compelling as a reader, and a lot of times I, I try to write stories that I would want to read type of thing, um, or even something like my wife is kind of my first reader. So I, sometimes I'll think, well, was this something that she would want to read? And so I'll, I'll usually write about things like that. And for me, I find it really compelling to write a character that is searching for the truth. And if they find the truth, it oftentimes makes things harder for them. Right. To me, I find that yeah. so courageous. Like it's, it's like they will, they will risk themselves and their own prosperity because the truth is more important than their own comfort. And mm-hmm. to me, that's just really courageous. And I find those stories very compelling. So um, in regard to like the human condition, I think the best stories, even in, even in fantasy, they show people as they are. Right. So you're going to see these traits, the good, bad, and the ugly and all. And if you do it right, I think it rings true to the reader and it makes the those characters come alive. Like, like I said, even in a fantasy setting, not that I write that stuff, but. Yeah, absolutely. The relatability factor. Yeah. Because we've all got a little bit of good, bad, and ugly in us. <laughs> yeah, we do. That's yeah. for sure. And and where do you draw the inspiration for these stories? Like what authors have you admired who maybe have contributed to your writing in some way? I think I, I tend to draw inspiration from just about everywhere. 
like my own life, you know, my past, things that I read or things I watch, the news, you know, movies or even places like YouTube. I mean, you name it. I, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I'm just, anytime I'm getting any information, it just sort of kind of goes in the bank. And I never really know if I'm going to actually use something, but it's funny how things kind of come out sometimes. But yeah. Um, yeah. But for example, I wrote a book called uh, The Predator Hunter. It's a thriller and it's about a guy who catfishes pedophiles on the internet and he sets them up, uh, sets up meetings with these people in real life with the intention of shaming them and, and exposing them basically for the world to see, right? And which sounds like a crazy idea, but there are actually people on YouTube right now that do this for real. And okay. um, that's where I, yeah, exactly. That's where I got yeah. the idea. I was like, wow, that's a really interesting, yeah. like, oh, there's a lot of things that could happen in that scenario. But, um, but anyway, that's how I got the idea. And that's, that's how, where the book came from. So I'm always kind of on the lookout for, for different ideas. So, you know, I'm constantly, for example, I wrote another book called uh, What Happened at the Lake, which is one of my more popular books, at least commercially. And I had taken a uh, family vacation with my brother and his family. And then her, he has adult daughters who also have husbands. So it was like a pretty full house. And it was on this lake called Norse Lake in Tennessee. And um, I was talking to my brother while, while I was there. And I was like, you know, it would be interesting for a story. Like, what if somebody in this house was a serial killer? And then mm. there was a murder that happened on one because like these little islands on this big lake, right? And there was a murder that happened on one of these islands and one of our kayaks was seen there, right? Ooh. And so then it's like, okay, the whole house is like trying to figure out who's like, who's the one, right? So that's right. kind of how that, that story, that's where the idea came from. But as far as authors go, uh, I really like, I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Parada. He wrote books like um, Election. There, there's actually a movie, Election, with, with Reese Witherspoon and, and Matthew okay. Broderick. Yeah. Uh, but he also wrote Little Children, Mrs. Fitzgerald, Tracy Flick Can't Win, which is the sequel to Election. A couple of those. I, I, I really like his stuff because I think he does, he does such a great like critique of suburbia. He's just kind of very funny to me in like this offbeat, sort of darkly funny kind of way. But uh, I, ironically, like if, if you go to his any of his books on Amazon and you check the reviews, he gets the absolute worst reviews. I mean, I was looking at, I was looking at one of his books a few days ago and I think the rating was like 3.6. I was like, wow, I really like that book. Mm. And it's like, he just gets slammed in the reviews, but, uh. Uh, but anyways, I also like Pat Conroy. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Prince of Tides, Water is Wide, Great Santini, Lords of Discipline. I, I've read pretty much everything except for his cookbook, I think, but uh, he writes with like this, I don't know, it's just really poetic prose. Like I, I'm not able to do what do that. I don't think, but uh, I'd like to be able to. And and he's the only, especially when he's writing about. Because he writes a lot about South Carolina, like the Low Country of South Carolina, and um, he's the only novelist where I read something and I totally understand what he's written, but I'll read it again because it's just so beautiful. But uh, so yeah, I I definitely like those two. There's tons of others, but we could go on and on. I'm sure. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's so many wonderful writers out there that we can, you know, pick apart their writing because we love it so much. And and it's for me, finding how they do things, like really looking at it differently than you would just, just picking up a book and reading it. Of course, you are going to enjoy the story, but just, you know, to really analyze it, we've all got our favorite writers and and things that we like to, to look at to try and figure out how they pieced it together and yeah. maybe we can somehow emulate that in our writing. Have you, have you ever read on writing by Stephen King? You know what? I have it. I have it, but I have not read it yet. 
Yeah, it's really good. It's really yeah. good. I, I think exactly what you're talking about, you'll, I think you, you'll find in when you read the book, you're yeah. like, wow, that's really interesting how he does this or that. He's, he's a total discovery writer, which is yeah. you know, interesting to me. I, you know, it, I, I think it bears out. And I, I, I'm not one that should be able to criticize Stephen King at all, but I think the discovery writing sometimes leads to endings that maybe aren't quite as complete. On the flip side, of course, if you plan too much, everything just seems too like on the nose. Right. Uh, so it's, I think, you know, it's, it's tough. It's yeah, tough to get that right. That but uh, happy medium. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's really yeah. hard. So you also wrote a children's book about permaculture and you yourself run a permaculture farm with your wife. So can you tell us more about how you were inspired to run this farm and then write a book about it for children? Well, first of all, we don't really, we don't really have a working farm exactly. It's more like a it's definitely a permaculture homestead type farm. I mean, we have lots of gardens and massive orchard and stuff, but I'm not really selling anything, just to be clear. But basically, we're producing a lot of food for our own consumption. So, you know, a lot of our food, maybe 60 or so percent of our food comes off the land, which is kind of cool, you mm-hmm. know. And we could do and we could do a lot more, but a lot of it, you know, dies on the vine just out of running out of time, that yeah. type of stuff. But, uh, but I used to be a commercial landscaper uh, and I sold, I sold my business in 2008 in part because I just didn't feel like the landscape industry was particularly sustainable, at least the way, you know, most companies do it. I didn't really know at the time I had no idea what I really wanted to do. Anyway, my wife and I, we bought this piece of land in rural Pennsylvania. It actually used to be an orchard, although it had been totally, all the trees were gone. It had been stripped. It was kind of a south facing hill. And um, it was just this big hayfield, basically six acre hayfield. And so I had this idea that, I, that you know, we, we wanted to kind of grow our own food and live in sort of a net zero energy house. So, you know, we, we, we didn't, we weren't so reliant on things and whatnot. And we could kind of do for ourselves. That was sort of like the, the dream, right? Anyway, so we, so we did. So I, I actually was, went to weatherization college too. So I kind of learned all about building science and how to build sustainable housing and whatnot. So I didn't personally build it, but I helped in the designing and whatnot. Anyway, so we, we ended up building a house that was that is actually sustainable. Uh, we, we produce more energy than what we use with the solar on the roof. And it's really tight and, and well insulated and uh, um, doesn't use, it's very efficient. So it doesn't use much energy to begin with. Anyway, so I started kind of gardening, just sort of trying to do the organic gardening. And when I first started, I mean, as a landscaper, you don't, it's it's not the same thing as like gardening. It just isn't. I mean, you're not, for the most part, you're not, you know, growing produce um, ever. In -hmm. fact, I can't, I can't even think of one time where we, where we planted some fruit tree or something. It's everything is just, you know, for looks for the most part, but yeah, yeah, it's all for aesthetics. You know, in fact, people, I'm, most people would be like, yeah, I don't want you to put a peach tree in my yard. Who's going to clean yeah. up all the peaches upside yeah. down? And, yeah. and then what about the birds? They're going to be crapping on my car and you know, all that <laughs> stuff. So, uh, so I started doing the organic gardening and that kind of led me to permaculture. And I was bad at organic gardening, by the way, I just wasn't very good. <laughs> I've, I've read that it takes like 10 years to become a competent gardener. And mm-hmm. I, so I, I've been doing this since 2008. That's probably correct. And you still, I'm still learning every year. I'm the, you know, mother nature always finds a way to mess, mess up your plans and you have of to course. adapt and, and she's, she's way, way more powerful than any of us. But, um, so I learned about permaculture, which was really interesting to me. And it's basically a design science where you're, you're really trying to mimic nature and natural systems in your, 
in your designs. And so you're kind of designing not just your garden and stuff, but your house and your lifestyle. Uh, for example, like in permaculture, you wouldn't, you know, how most people will stick their garden way in their backyard so nobody mm-hmm. can see it. Like in permaculture, like your kitchen garden is something that needs a lot of tending. So you'd put it really close to the kitchen, you know, right. someplace that's got sun, that's really, really close and easy to tend to. So, you know, like our main garden is right out in the front yard. Our trees, like our orchards that require more care are a little further out, but also closer in uh, than like the, the natural fruit trees that require no care, you know, but the grafted fruit trees that require, you know, more care, they're going to be a little closer in, you know, the ones that require more pruning and harvesting and all that stuff. And then the stuff on the far ends of the property, that's, you know, that's going to be more natural, like natural woodlands and stuff like that. That's, I ended up planting over 2000 trees on this property. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I dug a couple thousand linear feet of swales. Uh, Now, granted, I didn't dig it by hand. I used an excavator Mm -hmm. Um, and I dug like four ponds and, you know, so it's a whole system. So basically if a, 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 a raindrop that falls at the top of the property has to go through, I think five swales and three ponds to before it exits. So we're, so by holding all that water and nutrient, you know, you're, it, we're feeding all the trees that are basically growing on the, on the swales and whatnot. And then we're right. reforcing the land with trees and plants that are beneficial to humans. And then of course the wildlife, but that's essentially what led me to, so initially my first book that I wrote was uh, fire the landscaper, which was basically kind of a nonfiction book about, what the landscape industry is like and, you know, how we could do it more sustainably and actually cheaper and with much less work, to be honest with you. I wrote that, that was like my first book. And then the children's book came right after that. But um, interestingly, we, in, in doing all this here, we, we ran into one of the big problems with people sort of, you know, our houses, like our property, I think it's beautiful, but it's very jungly. Like you, you would come here and you'd be like, Oh my God, it's a jungle. And, uh, (laughs) I might not. I love stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You're you're probably fine with it, but there's a lot of people who are used to kind of the golf course look yeah. of the yard, and everything is neat. And we actually got into to a lot of trouble with the township, and Aww. we were in a position where I thought there was a good chance that I could go to jail. Um, oh, I was really? really worried. Yeah, it was bad. Like we were, wow. we actually had, we were actually the first people here to challenge the universal property maintenance code in our township. Oh. And, uh, and I was like, there's just no way. And, but we were, we, I guess we, we made our case. And so they, uh, they deemed our entire property a garden. So now we can, you know, have oh. things more natural. Um, mm-hmm. so we, we really did luck out and it's like, we kind of won for ourselves, but as far as like, everybody else, you know, we didn't win at all because for most people, they, if they wanted to do what we did, they, they would run into, they'd run into problems like, we uh, did, which is kind of sad. If you yeah, think it is. About I was it. just going to say that's so sad because I mean, yeah. it's, it's natural. Absolutely. <laughs> it should be that way, you know? Absolutely. And people that are worried about carbon, the best thing to do is plant trees. Yeah. You know, the, the more that we have runoff, I mean, it creates all these issues with the water supply, which I think is even a bigger problem just because of how much contamination is for our water. But the more we, you know, strip the land and, and apply chemicals, the more issues we end up with, with water and, and other problems. So, mm. um, but the, the sad thing too, is like, it's, it's a lot less work to, to not have to do all the crazy mowing and spraying and everything. And, and, uh, and not only that, it's a lot more fun. We get a lot more I don't know too many people that go out in their yard and get food. You know, most people have to go to the store, you know, we go to the store too, but yeah, but we also get a lot of stuff off the land, which is, it's, which is to be honest, is a lot of fun. There's studies that show that when you go out and actually pick 
a ripe fruit or vegetable, like there's some dopamine release or something mm -hmm. where it's like deep in our, deep in our biology. This is what we felt when we were, you know, uh, hunter gatherers. So, yeah. so recreating that is really healthy and really good for people. Uh, yeah. Oh, so, I believe it. Yeah. And we're just so, I just think that it's sad that we've become so disconnected from the land. Right. Um, but uh, like we used to even butcher our own chickens and do all that stuff too, mm -hmm. um, which is really hard, but I think it's good to get somewhat connected to the meat you eat too, which is, yeah, which is another topic, but yeah. anyway, I, I think it's awesome that you kind of turn that experience and that desire to, to move forward that way into a children's book, because I mean, that's how they're going to learn, right? Children yeah. love to read books Absolutely. and that's how they start picking things up and, and to see that being done. Um, I think that's fantastic. You know, as an aside, I think gardening is really great for writers in general, mm -hmm. because if you think about it, we sit down all day long in yeah. front of a computer. And I just think, you know, it's really good to be able to get up and say, Hey, I'm going to go out for a few hours and, you know, work outside for a while. It's just, a, it's just a good uh, mix of work. Yeah. Um, not only the fresh air, but, you know, just getting your hands dirty and in a different yep. way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just moving back, I guess, into the fiction work, something that you mentioned in our emails about writing was about writing realistic sociopaths. And like you've said, um, most of us has never met a serial killer, but we all likely know several sociopaths. So this kind of is a topic close to home for me. Um, I think they're often un undiagnosed and yep. therefore the problem's never solved. And I think there's a lot more out there in the world than most people understand. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on how to write an authentic sociopath when it comes to those characters? Yeah, I think the psychology behind some of these um, antisocial personality disorders is really fascinating. And if you're going to write these types of antagonists, and most writers that are in the thriller genre are in fact writing antagonists with with some sort of antisocial personality disorders. And I think mm -hmm. it's important to have some sort of knowledge about how they actually act, how they present, what they do, the behaviors, the whole thing. But sociopaths are, are something I think that a lot of, I think a lot of writers get it wrong because there's this sort of this perception that sociopaths are like these serial killers that are collecting severed heads in their basements, right? Um, and, and there are serial killers out there that, and they're without a doubt, they're probably sociopaths. However, there's only like, I, I looked this up, mm -hmm. the FBI says there's only like 20 to 50 active serial killers in the US right now. Okay. However, if you look at like sociopaths, according to, I don't know if you've ever read the, the book, The Sociopath Next Door by Martha Stout. A long time ago. Yeah, it's yeah. such a good book, but she mm -hmm. talks about, she's a psychologist and she says, she thinks that approximately 4% of the population is sociopathic. Yeah. So we're talking one in 25 people, I mean, we don't have to be experts in math to be like, hey, I know more than 25 people. Yeah. That means that I probably know quite a few. I mean, we, we know at least there's at least probably 100 people more or less in our lives at some point, uh, you know, over the past year or whatever. So it's like, OK, four chances are four, at least four of them are probably sociopaths. Mm -hmm. And um, according to what, you know, Martha Stout, the psychologist says, is that a sociopath is basically someone that's born without a conscience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they don't actually have to be the murderers, but, and usually they aren't, uh, they might be, they might just be someone who takes advantage of other people. Somebody who's, you know, of course they're not bothered by a conscience. They might, you know, they might lie. They might, you know, they might do all sorts of different 
things that make no sense to you and I, or things that you and I wouldn't do because we would feel bad because they're not going to have that conscience. That's, that's going to make them feel bad that they've hurt somebody's feelings or that they've lied to get ahead or that they've lied on a resume or whatever it is that they, mm-hmm. that they're doing or all these different things. Uh, one of the things that is interesting about sociopaths is that even though they, they all don't have a conscience, they're all very different from each other. So just mm-hmm. like, you know, people in, in society are very different from one another sociopaths themselves are very different, different. So therefore they're difficult to spot and find. Yeah. But one of the things that there is one trait, according to Martha Stout, there's one trait that is the most common trait that they kind of all share, which I think is so interesting is that they often play the victim, Yes. Um, which yes, is so, which is so interesting to me. But so, so anyway, so for people who want to write the, you know, good sociopaths, I would definitely recommend reading, reading that book, the sociopath next door. It gives you a really good idea of how these people operate, you know, you know yeah. some of these people are just kind of like low level sociopaths. Like just imagine like, you know, some guy who's just, you know, he, he, let's say he, he marries a, you know, a woman that's, that's very conscientious, has a good job. And he just, just kind of lays around the house, lies about what he does all day. You know, that, that can be a sociopath. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just sort of taking advantage of this person and he doesn't feel bad about it. Yeah. You know, he's not necessarily breaking the law, but no, that's just yeah. it. Yeah, they, they're a, sneaky that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's very good advice. I definitely recommend. I mean, if you write in that genre, it's it's just a good thing to know and just kind of keep yeah. in your back pocket for when you are creating Absolutely. those characters. Also good for your own personal life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're ever wondering, like, why, why does every time I come back from seeing that person, do I feel terrible? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I unfortunately have personal experience with one and in particular. And so I know all of these things that you're talking about from personal experience and, and it's absolutely right. Yeah. They're out there. They do exist and it's it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. You do need to watch out. So something else you mentioned was about using personal experience to enhance the realism of fiction. And this is something that I've talked about on the podcast before the importance of drawing on your own experiences to write authentic characters and stories so that you can appeal to the reader's emotions and have them connect to your story in some way. I think emotional responses can be used in a variety of different scenarios, whether or not you've experienced that particular situation or not. Um, just imagining how you'd react and infusing those known emotions can really help make fiction seem real. So what are your thoughts on that? And how do you make sure you're using your own personal experiences in the right way in the right scenes? Yeah, this is this, I think this is a really interesting topic. I think every author to a certain extent uses their personal experiences in their writing, right? I mean, there's otherwise, like, how do we know anything? Yeah. (laughs) Right. So I think an author, sometimes I, I don't think we're even really aware of it. Like we're, we're, you know, how do we know the things that we know? Right. So as people were soaking up information and experiencing life, and I think it's impossible not to have any bit of that personal experience end up in your writing. So for me, I, I, I try to embrace it. So it's a lot easier to write about things that I know. For example, I used to be a landscape contractor. So a lot, a lot of times I'll make my protagonist, you know, various tradesmen, because mm-hmm. I have some idea of what it feels like to work with your hands for a living. Right. So, you know, and, I, and I'll, I'll write about, sometimes I'll write about sports because I was a college athlete. So, or I'll write about farming or beekeeping or raising chickens, you know, all these are all things that I've had experience with. I think where it gets kind of tricky is when you're writing characters and sensitive situations that might mirror your own life. 
for example, if you knew somebody personally who was a, you know, a victim of abuse, right? You don't want to use that person's trauma for like a story, right? However, the flip side of that is I think if you personally were a victim of abuse and you and writing a variation of what you suffered is helpful to you, I don't see any ethical problem with that whatsoever. That's your mm-hmm. story that you, you have a right to tell that. You know, and, and I think if you're, I think if you're ever concerned that you might be, for example, like if you're writing a story about somebody who's, you know, dealing with some sort of like uh, sensitive situation and, you know, maybe you know about something personally that is from somebody that you know, but you don't want to reveal, like if you don't want them to read it and say, oh, yeah. I know that was me. Yeah. So I think you got to at least change it enough to where if they read it, they wouldn't have their feelings hurt. Or you go the route of saying, hey, you know, your, your story really touched me and I would like to use it. If you're not mm-hmm. comfortable with that, it's okay. You know, but obviously I would change names and whatever, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Right. Um, so ultimately I think it's about having some, some, uh, you know, empathy for where you're drawing the information from when, when it's, when it's obvious that, it, that somebody might know who, who that person was. But, uh, the other, th- the other thing is, is like personal experience, you know, it doesn't work for everything. Right. I've never, I've never murdered anyone, but I write yeah. about that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, that's, of course, that's where research comes into it. Right. I, I, so I do a ton of research, even though I try to write things I don't, I, about it, things I know. Uh, but it turns out there's a lot more that I don't know than, than things that I do know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Research is so important. And I think, you know, just like we, we were just talking about um, the sociopath next door, that's, that's great research. And that gives us the insight into these people that right. we're writing about. Um, so that you can learn enough to make them as yep. authentic as possible. And there's no ethical problems there. No, as long as, no. As long as you're not stealing Martha Stout's words, which you wouldn't, it's nonfiction. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'd like to talk a bit about the hero archetype and why it's so compelling to readers. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the hero archetype, that's huge. Um, I think it's so compelling to people because I think the hero represents like the person we, we all want to be right. Everyone wants to be the hero in their own life. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, sometimes we're the antagonist or, you know, sometimes we're just that side character that nobody cares about. It doesn't really do anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I think the hero though, that, that hero embodies the person that we wish we were. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I think about it all the time. I write these heroes and, you know, I write these protagonists. And I'm like, yeah, I want to be like that person. And, um, you know, sometimes readers will be like, oh, are you writing that as yourself? I was like, no, I, I wish I was that person. Mm-hmm. Not, that's not me. I wish that was me. I wish I was that good. Um, you know, you have your heroes are going to be they're They're honest and strong and determined and smart and kind and compassionate. You know, they're giving. They're all these. These all they're all the great things that we want to be. And I think most importantly, I think heroes, they they sacrifice themselves kind of to do the right thing. Right. Yeah. Which is so which is so hard to do in real life. I think about scenarios in real life and I see, for example, here's an example. Like there was this, my, my, my wife, she's a teacher and, and there was a uh, situation at her school where teachers could sort of stand up and do the right thing or, or possibly run the risk of, you know, having their job threatened if they didn't say anything at a school board meeting. Turns out none of the teachers spoke up. My wife was the only one who spoke up and basically she was trying to save a few other people's jobs. 
and there was oh, pressure okay. for her not to say anything. And she thought it was wrong. I, I agreed with her. She was mm-hmm. right that they, because it was political, they were trying to get rid of, they're trying to get rid of some administrators that for political reasons, not because they had actually done something so terrible, yeah. but they were, they, they took an event that happened that was, that wasn't out of their control and they made it into this big thing and tried to totally shame them. And it, it was, it was a real mess, but mm-hmm. all the teachers, there was a slate of like 10 teachers that were supposed to speak. They ended up not speaking because the basically the union sent out a letter telling them that, hey, they could get fired if they spoke out. Mm. Uh, you know, my wife, Denise, she went out and, and spoke anyway. And I knew they weren't going to get fired. I knew they were just they were just threatening them. Yeah. But here's an opportunity like, hey, you could be the hero in your own story. And to be honest with you, it didn't really cost you much. Now, mm-hmm. my, my wife, she dealt with people being basically people being mean to her for uh, quite a few years because she was the one that spoke out. Uh, the, 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 the administrators did keep their jobs. And, um, and she was, you know, and so she, she paid for it, but she, she certainly didn't lose her job. I knew that wasn't going to be an issue, Mm -hmm. but, but she got, got a chance to be the hero in her own life. And she, you know, and she did. And I was, I was super proud of her that she did that. And it's like, and how many times do we get an opportunity to do that? Right. How many times do we, like, I could have just said, oh, we're going to acquiesce to the County and I'm just going to go back to, I'm going to, you know, cut all my grass and have my lawn be like a golf course. And I'll just listen to them. Or I can try to stand up and risk fines or even possibly jail if I don't comply, you know, what would the hero do? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm not saying that it's easy and that's the whole point, right? It's not easy. And I, and there's times where I'm like, I should have been the hero there, but I wasn't, I was the antagonist or I was the lazy side character who didn't want to get involved. But, um, but anyway, so I, I really think that this idea of the hero that, that gives people a lot of purpose in their life. And, uh, the more, the more I think that we can live like the heroes of our stories, I think the happier ultimately we are. Not to say that it's not hard, right? Yeah. I think it is really hard. Otherwise, everybody would do it. Yeah, absolutely. And just putting all of those relatable qualities, the things that we all hope right. and aspire to, right? That right. can really help right. us connect. Yeah, and with showing the them struggle with the choice, right? Yes. Knowing that, hey, this is going to be hard. Maybe showing them mess it up in the beginning, right. And show them yeah. making the, making the easy choice. So they didn't have to be bothered or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And then showing them grow into be the person that makes the right choice, even sacrificing for others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what is your typical process from the spark of an idea to a finished book? Do you outline, do you have kind of a daily routine or how does it work for you? Uh, I start with a really broad idea, like for example, one of the one of my recent books that I've just finished up uh, called The Cart Pusher. It's basically about a retail worker that gets rich with Bitcoin. So this is that's just the kind of the the broad idea. And and then so I'll take a broad idea, and then I'll start looking at okay, well, who are going to be the main characters? And and I'll start. And a lot of times, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, well, this is going to be a twenty two year old male. So I'll type in twenty two year old male into Google. I'll just start looking at pictures of twenty two year old males and say that guy looks like the guy who's in my mind. Right. And so then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take a copy of the picture. I make like a character sheet that has their name and age and, uh, has their occupation, their, their height and weight, their physical attributes, their mental description, their, uh, their background. I know this cause I'm, lo- I'm actually looking at, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at my character sheets that are hanging on my wall on okay. my computer right now. So, yeah. so th- I've got their background, how they talk, uh, the ticks and idiosyncrasies, like if they've got any weird things that they do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and basically what, what they want, right. What he or she wants. So once I get the, you know, some of the main characters, I'll start kind of writing a, a, a plot outline, you know, chapter by chapter. Okay. Well, how would it start? And then as I go along, I'll add characters as I need them. So I'll, I'll 
go through the whole outline. And then eventually I'll get to the point where the outline is as detailed as, as it has dates and times and the whole thing. Right. And I'll typically go through the outline several times to kind of see if there's a story there, see if there's something that's compelling, see if it's, if it's something where, you know, it, it, it's hitting the, the right, hitting the, the right inciting incident, hitting the right climax. And, you know, and the pieces are all fitting together in a way that's satisfying. Uh, and so if I, if I get that, then I'll start actually writing the book chapter by chapter. And then, then it's just like 2000 words a day of first draft material. And then it, you know, it'll take roughly 45 days to 60 days to get that first draft done. Um, and then it's, then of course, it's the same thing that most writers have to do. Then it's, you know, off to the structural editor and then there's rewrites and then there's, you know, more edits and then it goes to the proofreader and then there's more edits. And I, I've counted, I think my books go through nine edits total, not including beta readers. That, that first draft is what takes the longest, but once that's done, the subsequent drafts are usually pretty fast. I usually have four books going at the same time just because, oh, wow. and the reason I do that is not because I want to, but because my vendors take forever. Like, you oh, know, okay. my structural editor will say, yeah, I'll get this back to you in two and a half months or three months. And I'm like, yeah. okay, I don't get mad. I just keep writing. So I'll just go to something else. Yeah. Uh, and same thing with all the other, you know, my cover artist said two months. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> two months. And I'm like, that's a long time, but I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I'm just, I, I go back to the next thing that's, that's on the list. So, um, but anyway, awesome. so that's kind of how the process works. Yeah. It sounds very detailed and well-planned out. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I do try to be flexible because, you know, we talked earlier about like the issues with being so planned out mm-hmm. because if it's so planned out and there's no mystery to it, it's yeah. hard to, it can get a little formulaic, I think. So what I mm-hmm. try to do is as I'm writing it, if something comes up, I'm like, oh, that would be better. I'll change the whole plot outline that like yep. after that chapter. So I, I try to be flexible enough to say, oh, I can make these changes. I, I don't have to go exactly with what's on the outline. So anyways, and sometimes through discovery writing, you know, you'll find something that's, that's funny or interesting. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I wasn't thinking I'd go this way, but this is, yeah. this is better, but. Yeah. It's good. I think it's good to be flexible that way. Be open yeah. to change anyways, just in case. Yeah. 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 And how has your publishing experience been so far? So it, it, you're saying that it takes quite a long time to go through the processes with the editor and, and proofreader and cover design and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, overall, how has the publishing experience been? Yeah, it's, to be honest, it's been tough, right? It's, it's not any, it's, it's a hard business. I mean, it's, yeah, it's the hardest business I've ever tried. That's for Mm -hmm. sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's no joke. I mean, it's, um, I think when I started and I think probably most, most writers go, through this. Like you start in the beginning and you're so, I don't know, I hate to use the word arrogant, but maybe I was a little arrogant just thinking that I could just do this. Right. (laughs) I think everybody (laughs) thinks that they could just write books. Yeah. It's a lot harder to do. (laughs) Yeah. It's, and, and and I think initially I thought I was, you know, this would be easy. And then you, you write a book and, and you think, okay, you you think it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. You just publish it. It's really good. And (laughs) and it's going to be the the best novel ever. It's going to be a movie. (laughs) Right. Of course, none of those things are going to happen probably with your first, with your first book, or even maybe even your 20th book. Um, You never know. uh, Yeah. You never know. You hope. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think in a way it was probably good that I went into the process being somewhat naive, thinking that, Hey, if I just write some good books, I can maybe make a living from writing and it'll be great. And I really like writing. So I this will be, and it turns out that I had to get to about, I don't know, 
close to 20 books before I was even making any sort of living that was above the poverty line. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so that, that's been kind of, uh, that's been difficult, right? You know, that's yeah. been difficult. I, I, the other thing that's been hard is, is, as I actually got to my goal, because my, my goal at the beginning was like, you know, I'd like to make a living for my writing, you know, then it's, it's like, you can kind of live anywhere. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, you, you, you love your work and it's like, you're not even at work. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the dream. Right. And in 2020 and 2021, I was there and I was like, Oh my God, I've arrived. I'm making a living for my writing. This is great. Mm -hmm. And then 2022 came around and it just, you know, now I'm making half right of what mm. I was in 2021. It's like, Oh my God, it's just so, and I think if, if you have kind of like this gradual, you know, even if you're not making a living from your writing, but you kind of have this gradual improvement and you see, and you're, you're hopeful, right? Cause you're like, Hey, I just need to keep doing what I'm doing. It's it's This is I'm making improvement, but mm -hmm. to get there and then have it, then have it feel like it's snatched away. It's so disheartening. Yeah. And, um, and I think, so to me, it's been, you know, publishing has not been easy. I don't have all the answers. I haven't figured it out. All I'm doing is trying to write the best books I can and hopefully improve. And that's, I continue yeah. to work to the best of my ability and it's, doesn't always yield the results I want. That's yeah. the hard truth of it. Do you think that's a, re a direct result of the pandemic or is it some other change that happened? I think that uh, maybe the pandemic had a little bit to do with it, but I think one of the big things was, is I was doing some things marketing wise that other authors hadn't figured out yet. Okay. And then, and specifically with Amazon ads and, and the specific thing that I was doing is I was marketing, not eBooks, but print books. I was selling a lot of print books. And then eventually what ended up happening is I think other authors caught onto this. And then now the bids that I was getting before I don't get anymore. Okay. Um, so the bids have gone way up. So it's not, it's not profitable anymore. It was profitable. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I had, I was getting bids of somewhere between 15 to 20 cent bids on Amazon ads. Okay. And now it's, now it's, you know, two to three times higher. So right. the profit margin has shrunk quite a bit. And I also don't get near as many clicks as I, as I had been. Mm -hmm. So I think that was one of the big things. I think if you were to really strip everything out, like all the marketing, all the gimmicks, like I used to, I used to get a lot more traction from like a book bub ad than I, than I do now. Mm -hmm. um, although it's still good. It's just not what it once was. And I also used to get approved for them a lot more, you know, years ago, uh, oh, okay. back in 2016 than I do now. Uh, there's a lot more competition. Like there wasn't near as many uh, trad published books that are on BookBub than there are now, right? There's a lot more. So there's okay. a lot more competition. There's also a lot more competition in general, I think, from writers. And it's it's almost like I've, I've had to run faster to stand still. Yeah. But uh, so that's been really hard. But um, I think that I think if you were to strip everything out, like all the gimmicks and everything, and really look at it, I, I probably am slowly but surely gathering readers. It's just it's just the, the marketing stuff's in the trends. Sometimes you can't control that stuff. Sometimes right. you ride a wave and sometimes you get hit by the wave. Right. Exactly. <laughs> what are you working on next? Do you have four on the go right now? Yeah, I have, uh, how many do we have? Uh, let's see one. I just uploaded the cart pusher to uh, Kindle Vela. So I, so I've got a process where I'll upload my books to Kindle Vela and let them be in there for 30 days prior to release. So basically it just gives me another, it delays the release by a month, but it, it actually more than a month. Cause I usually put out episodes one, eight, one a day. So it usually mm -hmm. delays it more by like two months or, or even two and a half. But the nice thing about it is I, 
it doesn't really stop my publishing process at all. It, my books still end up out there in the same things. You know, I still get in audible and print and ebook. It just, if you're in Vela, they make you wait 30 days is all. Oh, okay. um, so, so I, I just uploaded the cart pusher, which is that book I mentioned earlier, which is about a, uh, basically I call it, I call it big Mart. We won't say what big box store it resembles, but <laughs> I call it big Mart. So this guy works at big Mart and, uh, he's a cart pusher. So he's one of the guys out in the, in the parking lot that pushes the carts around, collects the carts and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he, he gets wealthy with Bitcoin. It's kind of like a, uh, meaning of life type book, which, uh, so he kind of befriends this, this big Mark greeter and he, big Mark greeter is this really old guy who used to be a philosophy professor. And it's, it's one of those stories that I love. That's never going to sell. And I, I just know it because it doesn't fit, just doesn't fit like a really good genre. But, um, that's one of my issues is I'll, I'll write the things that I really want to write. And, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes they, they, it's something commercial and sometimes it's not, but I, I just feel like if I, if I wrote everything just to market that some of these books just wouldn't be very good. Um, yeah. So I try to write what I'm really interested in and hopefully people appreciate that. But, uh, yeah. but anyway, so, I'm, so the other book I've got is uh, no good D that just came out and that's a thriller. It's actually a, it's actually an interesting uh, concept. Like I had this idea we, one of the things that happened, you know, a couple of summers ago, you know, we had the, the, we had the George Floyd riots here and, mm -hmm. and we had uh, a lot of people were really upset about, you know, what happened to him. And, uh, and there's been a lot of police videos that have been out there that shows, yeah. you know, different police brutality and whatnot. But anyways, I always wondered, it's like, what if somebody were to have intervened? Like, let's just say you were standing there and you were there. What if you would have run over there and pushed the guy off George mm -hmm. Floyd's neck? Like, what mm -hmm. if somebody would have done that? hypothetically. So I actually did some research now and I was like, you know, what if not necessarily obviously any event, like, is there ever been an instance where a civilian has intervened in some sort of police brutality? So I was like, I was really curious about that. It was like, I've never heard of that ever happening. And I couldn't find that scenario happening anywhere, which if you think about it is kind of scary. And if you know anything about I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Stanley Milgram, Stanley, this is kind of an aside, but this is, this will make sense is why I'm bringing this up. But Stanley Milgram, uh, he did this experiment around authority. So basically what the experiment was, they had one person who was like the person they were, they were testing. They didn't know they were being tested, but basically what they were doing is they would sit in this, they would sit behind this little box that, that delivered electroshocks to this guy in a booth next door. Right. And mm -hmm. you could hear the guy like, Oh, that hurt. Right. You could hear him. And yeah. the guy that was in the booth was just an actor. He was part of the experiment, right? So he mm -hmm. was pretending for the guy that's doing the shocks. And then there was an experimenter who's like this guy with a white lab coat who asks these different word pairs. And when the guy in the booth gets it wrong, the, the other guy, the, the person that's being, that they're checking, that they're experimenting on has to deliver these shocks, oh, right? Yeah. And each time it's so crazy. And each time the guy gets one wrong, they, they up the shock, right? So and, they, and what they're trying to test is how far somebody will go uh, before they say, you know, I'm not doing this, right? Mm -hmm. And what they found, and this is so amazing, and this, and believe it or not, this experiment's very famous. You look up Stanley Milgram experiment, it's been recreated all over the world. Mm -hmm. And what they found, not just initially with Stanley Milgram, but what they've found in even in the recreations is roughly two thirds of people in the world will shock somebody to death simply because somebody in a white lab coat tells them to do so. Oh, wow. So that, so this idea of authority is so interesting to me is how, how much we are just so afraid of authority and, and we'll, and we'll literally do things against our own moral code 
of what we think is right or wrong because of authority. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why I could not find a single incident of somebody seeing somebody in a police brutality situation and intervening. Um, so basically that's what this story is about. It's about a, uh, a guy that gets in a, a police officer that goes to work and he's already in a bad mood. He's had some bad things happen. And so he, and then there's a guy that's, uh, I don't know if you've, you've ever seen on YouTube, there's these, uh, police accountability people that go out and film the police and they sort of heckle the police. And anyway, so there's people that are actually doing this. So one of the characters is a guy that does this. He goes out and, and essentially heckles the police. So he heckles the police. They get into an altercation. It gets really deadly. There's a guy. There's a, there's a guy coming out of the store. Uh, he sees this and he intervenes. Right. And mm-hmm. what happens to him? He intervenes. The cop turns the baton on him. The guy gets into a, a altercation with the cop, grabs the baton, hits the cop over the head, and the cop dies. Oh. So wow. now you have this dilemma. The dilemma is the guy who intervened. Is he a murderer? Or was he, or was this self-defense because he was defending some guy that was being beaten unconscious? And so that's the, that's the story. So how you have wow. like, here you have the town very divided of who's, you know, you're going to have people that are going to be on the top side of the police and you're people on the side of, of the, uh, you know, the people that are, you know, being, and this is one of those towns. I don't know if you're familiar with Ferguson, Missouri, Ferguson, Missouri was the site of one of the demonstrations and riots that we had early on here in the, in the States. And one of the reasons, and people don't know this about Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri, is one of the reasons why the the people in this town were so agitated uh, was because they have a very high incidence of warrants. So there's a lot of people that are getting tickets and things for just sort of ticky tack stuff. Yeah. Essentially, what's happening is the the local government there is using the the population as a revenue source. So they're ticketing and essentially to make money to feed the apparatus. As they're taking your money, you're essentially paying for your own oppression. That's how a lot of these people felt, I think. And that's why you saw this thing blow up. Um, yeah. And that's kind of what this this fictional town is kind of like. So you have people that are sort of fed up. And then you also have people that are, you know, wanting to sort of keep this government apparatus alive. So it's a very thought-provoking book. Uh, I think some people are probably going to be, a lot of people who read it are probably not going to be happy with the content. And some people are probably going to find it interesting. But uh um, well, I try to write things that I find interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's one of those like scenarios that to me was really interesting to explore, like what actually would happen to this person. I personally think they'd go to jail forever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's probably what I th- yeah. think would happen. I, I'm not going to say exactly what happens, but yeah, uh, but I think that's probably what would happen. I, there's There's definitely a double standard. I think in that scenario, if somebody was on the street and they were just dressed in normal attire, beating down somebody and somebody intervened in that way, I don't think there's near as many consequences than if you add the uniform to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, that sounds like a fascinating look at, you know, some important topics and, and things that are relevant to what's, yeah, I hope, what has I hope been that, going on. And Thank you. I, I really hope that the, the hard thing with doing that is I try to do it in a way that's, that shows multiple sides to this mm-hmm. and, and such a way, like, I, I don't want to be on one. Okay. Now, granted, this is a corrupt town. So there is, there is some of, you know, some of the, the protagonists are going to be against the, you know, the, the state power, but at the mm-hmm. same time, even the people that have the state power that are part of this apparatus, they are human beings and they're, you know, they have their own struggles and the way they view things too. They're not just straight 
terrible antagonists, you know, and I, I hate to write antagonists that way mm-hmm. where they're just every, everything they do is bad. But, um, so you, so I try, you try to show the human side, even to the antagonists, if you can. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Really important. The last book I'm working on is a, is, is this is the new one. It's a, it's a thriller called incel. So you have these, basically it's mostly men, uh, although they, they apparently there are what they call fem cells, which, which mm-hmm. are, which are much less prevalent, I think for obvious reasons, but, yeah. uh, but anyway, so these, these incels, I, I just thought this was so interesting when I heard about this, I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. I got to write, I got to, I got to look more into this. So, um, so basically they're, they're mostly younger 20 somethings that, you know, have trouble in the dating sphere and, um, and some of them, and there's also the whole red pill, blue pill and black pill. I don't know if you're familiar with that terminology. Whereas like, you know, the red pill and the blue pill is kind of a reference to the matrix. Well, right? that's yeah. The red yeah, and blue. So, yeah. Yeah. So like the, the, the red pill is like, you know, you, you take that pill and you, you want to know what's true and you're willing to accept the pain that goes with that where it's like, okay, well, I want to take the blue pill. Cause I just want to live in bliss and I don't want to know the truth. Yeah. Um, the black pill is like a more extreme version of kind of the red pill. Oh, okay. uh, but anyways, but in the, in sort of like the incel community and maybe like the, the manosphere, right. The, all these, the, the, all the people that are sort of like the men's rights people and the, you know, the people that are kind of speaking out, uh, or, or kind of like the, you get, you get some, some of these like pickup artist guys and this whole community is, is sort of, it's kind of like all sort of mixed together. And, um, and the, the, the red pill community that, that this is what they call themselves. They view women in this sort of, they view women as like these, as hypergamous, like this is what they say. Now to clarify, I do not believe this to be true. I think there are there, I think on both sides of this argument, there are truths, but I, you can't paint with these broad yeah. brushes because it's just not, it's not true, but they view as women as hypergamous, like hypergamy means that essentially like, let's say. Uh, you're with somebody and you're like, I'm with this guy, but I'm always looking to trade up to somebody better. I'm looking for higher status. And so you get the red pill community where they really believe this and they kind of want to, so they want to kind of game the system and beat and essentially beat women at their own game. That's, that's would be what they would say. So in this book, the incel, I've got six main characters and they're all kind of on dating apps, which is also another really interesting topic because I think it's gotten really toxic, like the whole Yes. Uh, online dating thing has gotten really yeah. toxic. And that's one of the things I kind of wanted to show in the book um, is how, and it's not just toxic for women or I think it's toxic for everybody Yeah, um, because it's, it's teaching people to, I think it's commodifying sex. It's teaching people to view people based on their measurements. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, how tall is he? Well, how, what does she look like? Or, you know, it's, yeah. it, we're, we're measuring people on all these things without actually even knowing them at all. Yeah. And, um, and you're, and, and by doing so you're eliminating, uh, people that might be, you're eliminating the most important cr- criteria in my mind, which is, are they a good person or not? Yeah. And, uh, Cause you can't tell that from you their profile. Even, you can't yeah. even tell of who you're talking to is what is being. That's true. Presented. hundred percent. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's one of the things that I've, in the early chapters, I kind of deal with that where they're looking at these profiles and one of the more shallow characters is like, well, you got to have the three sixes. The, the six figure income, the mm-hmm. six feet tall and the six, you know what, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, and then the, the, on the flip side, the, the men are like, uh, the men are, are, are saying, well, you know, she's, she's overweight because she doesn't show her full body picture. And, you know, and, and so they're superficial on their end. Yeah. And, um, so these six characters are sort of trying to navigate 
these dating apps and you have two of them that are, that are superficial. They're actually good people, but you, in the beginning, they're very superficial and they're eventually going to, going to be forced. They're going to be put in a situation that they're going to have to have to let go of that superficiality. But then there's other, another two characters that are at the average, they represent kind of the average Joe and Jane. And so they're, they're going to view this sort of as probably as the average reader would, as you or I probably would. And then there's one incel who he's a paranoid delusional uh, sociopath, right? And throughout the story, each of these main characters do something unknowingly that really upsets him. And then towards the end of the book, he follows one of them and finds them all together. And so he has this, he's got it in his mind that they're plotting against him. So that's, that's kind of the story, but there's, there's, there's sort of a bigger message. Uh, But I I think it's really interesting to kind of, to kind of explore these fringes of society, Mm -hmm. right? The black pill community or the, these dating apps, which have become so toxic to people. I, I feel bad for anybody who's in the dating scene. I really do. I, I, <laughs> I wish you luck. I, I hope that you find a way to weed through all the mess and find somebody good. I really do. Yeah. I think that's probably pretty tough to do in this day and age. Yeah. I yeah. agree. So what would be your biggest piece of writing advice to share with our listeners? Yeah. So for writers, I would recommend writing in one genre. Um, because like, this is something that this is advice that I have not followed. Uh, (laughs) if if you, if you go, you go to my Amazon page, in fact, I just realized that I've got a new genre where where I've got books in the horror genre. Now, I think if you counted the genres I've written in, I think it's probably seven or eight of the main ones. They're all the main ones, science fiction, romance, thrill, nonfiction, children's. I mean, all the, uh, and I, I think that that's fun. It's been fun for me to learn these different you know, all the tropes and learn all that stuff. And I think it, it can make you a better writer, but it's terrible for marketing. I mean, it's really bad. I mean, so I, what I ended up have had to do is I've had to take the books that I most write, like thrillers is the biggest genre I write in. And, you know, I have the most books that are thrillers and just market those. And basically my other books are left to fend for themselves for the most part, because, Mm. you know, you, you, the, the marketing is different, you know, if you're going to be in a different genre. So it's, you know, it affects a lot of things. So I think that, um, you know, some, some writers will do the different pen name for a different genre. Yeah. But the problem with that is you're still breaking yourself up, right? If you, for example, if let's say you had 10 books in the thriller genre or five books in thriller genre and five nonfiction, I think you'd do better with 10 books in the thriller genre Mm -hmm. because you're, you've got twice the opportunity to have, to have, um, have audience. I, I think it's compounding yeah. over time. Yeah. And if, if you're, if you're splitting yourself thin, I think it's, it becomes a lot harder. And that's what I've done, unfortunately, but no going back now. <laughs> I think, I mean, if you did want to write in a different genre, I think it's probably important to establish yourself, you know, with those 10 thriller books, because then you've mm-hmm. got all of that readership that has been following you since book one, yeah. or maybe picked up, you know, book five, oh my goodness, I'm going to read these previous books that he's written but then you know you've got this following of fans basically and then you can introduce hey I've got this idea here's another book and it's a completely different genre but you're already going to have those readers that are going to be like yeah I love all of his other books I'm going to give this one a shot too yeah I think that I think that definitely works if for your hardcore readers Mm -hmm. I think unfortunately I think that you know for example I have roughly I have a very pruned email list of, of about 10,000 people and I, I get about half 
if I send one email, about half of them open. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very pruned list of people. And I would say that of those 5,000 people that, or of those 10,000 people, I would say probably only a few hundred are really hardcore fans, okay. right? I think a, a lot of them, now it may be different for other people, right? You know, when I say hardcore fans, I mean, hardcore fans that would read everything that I write, right. um, regardless of the genre. But if I sent like a thriller book out, I think I'm looking more in like, more like several thousand that might be interested. Um, you know, but if I sent, but if I sent a nonfiction book out, I'm in, in the low hundreds of people that would be interested. Right. So, um, so that's, that's what I, that's kind of what I found people, other people might find that different. Uh, it hasn't, hasn't worked great for me uh, as far as transitioning from, you know, genre to another. now, if you're in the thriller genre, you might be able to go to like horror and that's not that big of a jump, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, especially if you have those, you know, just like an element of horror or like romantic suspense or something like that. People, mm -hmm. you know, some of the thriller uh, readers will tolerate, you know, or, you know, a little bit of romance, uh, you know, some hate it, but you know, you get some that, that would be okay with it. I personally mm -hmm. will read anything. And maybe mm -hmm. that's why I write in all these different genres. Cause I just, you know, I, I, I like anything that's well-written and entertaining uh, regardless of the genre. But yeah, that's kind of what it comes down to, right? The story, yeah. it has to resonate in some way and it's not, it's not just the story or the setting or anything like that. It's the writing. You have yeah. to connect with your readers through your writing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Phil, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, so did I. Thank you for having me on, Kathleen. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this interview has inspired you or helped your writing process in some way. Tune in Tuesday for another great interview and some more pitch critiques. Until then, keep being badass. <laughs>